Hello, everyone. This is episode one, installment one, class one. I don't know what to call it in uh, this course, English 218, Introduction to Creative Writing. In today's recording, you'll hear a conversation between me and my wife about David Foster Wallace's essay called Getting Away from Already Being Pretty Much Away from It All. Plus, at the end of this recording, I'll give you a free and optional and just for fun writing prompt that will hopefully help you break out of any summer writer's block. Before we get into discussing David Foster Wallace's essay, I would like to start with an inspirational, at least I hope inspirational, quote about writing. This is uh, by Jack London, the author of Call of the Wild, The White Fang, and many other uh, amazing and strange books. He once said, you can't wait for inspiration. You have to go after it with a club. And I really like that because um, as inspiring as I hope this course will be to you, and as much as we need to rely sometimes on inspiration, uh, we have to be, I think, our own source of inspiration, and we have to chase our writing down. It won't come to us. We have to go to it. We have to let ourselves write badly and uh, consider any day where we at least try to write a win. I will also begin these uh, recordings or episodes or whatever we're going to call them with some class announcements, but since this is the first one, um, no announcements yet other than just make sure that you stay on track with the reading, especially here at the beginning, because I've started the syllabus with really long readings, so I would highly recommend that you get a good head start. Don't save these to the night before. Um, also, I'd like to say that ideally, you're coming to these recordings after you've already read the readings on your own. Of course, I can't really police this, and I suppose you're welcome to do it any way you want, but I really do think that these recordings will be more enjoyable, more informative, more helpful if you have already familiarized yourself with the text for that day. It's never really that fun to listen to a conversation about a book or an essay or a poem that you haven't read yet, right? So just do yourself the favor and make sure that you're not listening to this until after you've read the essay. So if you haven't read the essay yet, press pause, go read the essay. Might take you a long time. It's kind of long. The one after it is even longer, but I promise these recordings will be better if you know what we're talking about. Okay, and so without further ado, let's go right into that chat about uh, David Foster Wallace's essay, which is called, again, it's hard to get this title right, Getting Away from Already Being Pretty Much Away from It All. This will all be edited out. Okay, well, I'm here with my wife, Claire Akebrand, author of a book of poems called What Was Left of the Stars, and author of also a beautiful novel called The Field is White. This is called Product Placement. You should all go Google these books and buy them. Hello, everyone. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, okay, so the first thing I'll say, I guess, is that... Um, these chats are not professional chats. These are not airbrushed chats. This is not the Instagram version of the perfect chat. Um, there will be weird, awkward pauses, mistakes. We'll probably say things that are dumb and wrong. There will be a minimum of editing that goes into these conversations, but uh, that's part of the point. 
I just want you to hear two people who really love a book talking about that book like humans. So that's what we're going to do. I thought I'd start by reading one of my favorite parts. Oh yeah, so we're talking about um, getting away from already pretty much being away from it all. And I wanted to start by reading one of my very favorite bits. Oh, where is it? Oh, here it is. So remember everyone, this is when um, they go up to the carnies and they're looking at all the rides and they get offered to go on a ride for free and uh, the narrator, the author, David Foster Wallace, of course, declines. Um, but his friend, native companion, couldn't be more excited. So I'm going to read, I don't know, maybe a page-ish, skipping around. Native, so if you want to follow along, this is page 98 of the book. Native companion is a blur of color inside her cage, but the operator and colleague, whose jeans have worked down his hips to the point where the top of his butt crack is clearly visible, watch studiously as her spinning cage and the clanky empty cages circle the ellipse approximately once a second. I have a particular long-standing fear of things that spin independently inside a larger spin. <laughs> I can barely even watch this. The zipper is the color of unbrushed teeth with big scabs of rust. The operator and colleague sit on a little steel bench before a panel full of black knobbed levers. The zipper begins to whine and the thing to spin so fast that a detached car would surely be, be hurled into orbit. The colleague has a small American flag folded into a bandana around his head. The empty cages shudder and clank as they whirl, spinning independently. One long scream, wobbled by Doppler, is coming from Native C's cage, which is going around and around on its hinges while the shape inside tumbles like stuff in a dryer. My particular neurological makeup, extremely sensitive, car sick, air sick, height sick, my sister likes to say I'm life sick, makes even just watching this an act of enormous personal courage. The scream goes on and on. It's nothing like a swine's. Then the operator stops the ride abruptly with Native C's car at the top, so she's hanging upside down inside the cage. I call up, is she okay? But the response is just high-pitched noises. I see the two carnies gazing upward very intently, shading their eyes. The operator is stroking his mustache contempl contemplatively. The cage's inversion has made Native Companion's dress fall up. They're ogling her nethers, obviously. As they laugh, the sound literally sounds like tee-hee-hee-hee. A less sensitive neurological specimen probably would have stepped in at this point and stopped the whole grotesque exercise. My own makeup leans more toward disassociation when under stress. Now the operator's joggling the choke levers of the zipper stutters back and forth, forward and backward, making NC's top car spin around and around on its hinges. His colleague's t-shirt has a stoned ninja turtle on it, toking on a joint. There's a distended A-sharp screen from the whirling cage, as if Native C is getting slow roasted. I summon saliva to step in and really say something stern, but at this point they start bringing her down. The operator is deft at his panel. The car's descent is almost fluffy. His hands on the levers are a kind of parody of tender care. The descent takes forever. Ominous silence from Native Companion's car. The two carnies are laughing and slapping their knee. I clear my throat twice. There's a trundly sound as Native Companion's car gets locked down at the platform. Jiggles of movement in the cage, and the door's latch slowly turns. I expect whatever husk of a human being emerges from the car to be hunched and sheet white, dribbling fluids. Instead, she sort of bounds out. And after she bounds out, she swears a lot. And um, it's really one of my favorite bits. One thing I love about this particular section that you read is how willing and eager even 
David, should I call him David? Sure. <laughs> um, he is to embarrass himself and to be honest about his flaws and all his weird eccentricities. He says he's car sick, etc. And his sister calls him life sick. He's making fun of himself, but also... <laughs> but also... Um, yeah, he's not like... And then I stopped the sexual harassment because I was brave and assertive, right? He's clearly right. the butt of the joke here and is... He's the one who's nervous yeah. while she's having fun and she doesn't care about the immature guys who are looking up her skirt. I know, that's another thing I really like about this, how, how he's foiling himself against her character, her maturity. She's psychologically and emotionally mature, right. and he's kind of like this kid who doesn't know what to do in a weird situation like this. So he's always the butt of his own joke and of his own criticism. So he, he does criticize people, and he has a very brutal way of noticing every single thing, everything. Um, but he's willing to look at himself the same, the exact same way. Would you say that's your favorite thing about this essay, the kind of self-examination? Or do you have other things about it that you really like? First of all, the way he does look at people and notices their weirdnesses is hilarious. Mm. But it's also moving in many ways. I think I remember one thing you said about the carnies, like the only way he could describe their tan was ominous. They were <laughs> ominously tanned or something. So, so yeah, he has a really great way of seeing people and very concisely showing you what they look like and the mood that that look kind of evokes for him. Right. He doesn't romanticize any of the farmers. He doesn't... Right. And he doesn't do the opposite either. He's just completely... He just sees them. Well, I want to actually talk about the seeing. I think one of the strengths of this, of this essay is how good he is at seeing. He's like... A giant eyeball that just can, seems to be able to see everything. Mm -hmm. So some of my favorite seeing moments are there's one at the very beginning when uh, he even kind of makes fun of how easy it is to see some of this stuff. Solid investigative journalism. Solid bent over investigative journalism reveals that they're standing on AstroTurf, which is covering real grass. <laughs> so, I mean, just wow. the fact that he noticed that, that they've, so they've rolled out AstroTurf over real grass. Oh I mean, that, that, that's a detail that would just fly right past me. I wouldn't notice that. Mm -hmm. And if, even if I did notice that, I probably wouldn't think that it's worth writing down. You know what I mean? Um, I also think another example is when he, they, they're giving him samples of fudge and he sees the sweat beating on the fudge that they just took out of the refrigerator. That's another example of like... Why pause there? Yeah, like you really... He really... Nothing is escaping him. I mean, I don't think I would notice that the fudge just out of the fridge is slightly beaded with fudge sweat. So good. Mm. It was one of the things that makes this essay and the next one a total masterpiece. It's another reason why they're so long, but... The length, when the details are this lush and surprising, I don't care about the length. I kind of just want them to be longer. And you don't care that it's about a state fair. I know. I, I couldn't, <laughs> it could be about anything. I couldn't be less interested in the state fair, but yeah, he made me interested at every page. I was... it did not sound exciting to me. Well, I had read the, his essay about the cruise, so I, I assumed it was going to be good, but even still, I was like, I don't want to read about a state fair. Mm -hmm. But it's all these ridiculous little details that 
make you want to read it forever. So that's that's a good point. Point number one would be ridiculously observed, like ridiculously keen power of observation. Yes, only like he said, he's extremely overly sensitive, right? And that part you just yeah, read. Yeah, that's right. Only somebody life-sick like him could write, notice all such details. That's a good point. He's kind of a, like neurotically dialed to have every little detail yeah, um, right. flash brightly on his radar screen. Right. Somebody who's always looking for signs of danger is going to notice everything. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for those of you out there taking notes, how to write well, I would put this down as number one on your list. Try harder to notice small things. Mm-hmm. How can one do that? Do you have any advice? I don't know. Um, I think reading things like this helps because then that's a good point. You are primed to yeah, because then you can know that like oh yeah, this is worth noting. The sweat on a piece of fudge is worth noticing. Yeah, that's exactly right. Right. So read more. Read more. I'd also say don't like don't have any bar for what counts as a valid detail. Mm-hmm. Everything counts as a valid detail, so have no expectations of, oh, that doesn't count for great literature. Like, everything is fair game. Right. And maybe also, don't go looking for huge ideas, just look for the details in there. The yeah. ideas are in the details, often. That's, I love that, too. You don't have to be... Well, I don't, I'm, I don't want to say you don't have to be smart, because you have to be smart in a way, but you don't have to be wise or profound. Exactly. Yeah, you don't have to have answers, you just have to open your eyes. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. It, reading this, I just felt that he was so wise. He just seemed like an ancient person. And I, I'd be willing to bet that 80% of that wisdom comes from, right? Am I wrong? His ability yeah. to see. Yeah. Maybe that's what wisdom is. He could just see. Who knows? <laughs> Listen to how wise we're being. Oh my gosh. So I would put that on the top of the, like, how to write well, see, 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 see. Don't stop seeing. I also think another great charm of this essay is the authorial persona. We've talked a little bit about that, but do you have anything to say about how he charms you with his personality? Well, like I said before, he's willing to um, admit his own flaws, and not just willing, but he's even excited, (laughs) seemingly, to show off his flaws. Um, because he does like the weird things about humanity. So yeah. I feel like he does genuinely, well, maybe he doesn't like his own weirdnesses, but... He's not trying to hide them. Yeah, right. I'm very charmed by this voice, by this type of person. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, there's this great moment, and maybe it's easy to miss, but this is on page 111 of the essay. And if you remember, up until now, he's been very excited to get to the dessert, uh, the desserts, what is it, the dessert competitions. Mm-hmm. So he says, 8, 14, 10, 15 hours, rested, hydrated, no native companion along to ask embarrassing questions about why the reverential treatment, plenty of time for the Harper's Bizarre Rumor to metastasize, I am primed to hit the dessert competitions. <laughs> 8, 14, 10, 25 hours, so this is 10 minutes later dessert competitions. <laughs> and then there's this conspicuous white face, right? No elaboration, which is very strange for him. Dessert competitions. 8, 14, 13, 15. So this is later that day. Illinois State Fair Infirmary, then Motel, then Springfield Memorial Medical Center Emergency Room for Distension and Possible Rupture of Transverse Colon, parentheses, false alarm. 
then motel, incapacitated till well after sunset, whole day of washout, incredibly embarrassing, unprofessional, indescribable, <laughs> delete entire day. Oh my God. <laughs> so, so he's a glutton. He couldn't control himself around the desserts. He tells us he ate so much desserts he ended up at the emergency room with some kind of colon potential colon rupture, right? He admits that this was unprofessional and totally embarrassing. He didn't have to put that in the essay. Exactly. And if it was so embarrassing, it wouldn't be in there. Like, I'm sure it was embarrassing for him, but that's what I mean about he seems to, in a way, celebrate mm. not just other people's weirdnesses, but also his own. <clears throat> yeah. He likes that humans are weird. Yeah, well, he just accepts that we're all flawed yes. and we all make mistakes and some people make those mistakes and he makes these mistakes. So um, if you're taking notes, right, we could put um, be open about your flaws, right? Be vulnerable. Let yourself be vulnerable on the page. Don't try to portray yourself as someone perfect, someone flawless, right? If you're writing about a story from your past or a, a place you visited, don't hesitate. Even I would encourage you to include all your weird foibles and hypocrisies. There's that other moment where he's looking at the pigs. What is that screaming animal? Is it a pig? Oh, yeah. That's, that's in distress. Really, that's really disturbing. Him and Native Companion are watching this pig screaming, and no he's one else cares. Thinking of corn dogs. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's what he says. Nobody else cares. And he starts for like half a second to get judgmental about these farmers or these ag pros, as he calls them. Why don't they care? They look at their pigs like products. Yeah, they look at their pigs like products. So he starts to get a little bit judgmental. And then he says, oh, but I'm actually like extremely excited for my <laughs> corn dog that I'm about to eat later. So again, the moral judgments are virtually always self-directed. Now we have to talk, if we're talking about moral judgments, we should talk about Kmart people. Mm. What's, your what's your reaction to that part? Again, one of my favorite bits, but... I've, I've assigned this essay before, and I've had students say, oh, he's so mean. He's so mean. And he makes fun of people. And the Kmart, the Kmart people section is probably, yeah, the section of this essay where that, that accusation makes the most sense. But what do you, how do you react? I think the part's beautiful. Beautiful? Beautiful. <laughs> That's great. Tell us why. Because it, there's that eye again. He, he notices everything and I think he even says in that part I know this sounds harsh but you know with people that love you or people that you love you show your love by being honest mm. sometimes brutally honest and he's being honest about what kind of people there are in the world he was looking at them and seeing them for what they are yeah and they have some redeeming qualities like right. And he talks about they have horrible taste, you know, but then there's this wonderful moment after he's just like, oh, they have horrible taste and they wear these horrible crass t-shirts. But then he says, but then again, he says, and now, so he's like correcting the spelling of horny on this t-shirt. <laughs> and then he says this, and now I really feel like an East Coast snob laying judgments and semiotic theories on these people who ask of life only a Republican in the White House and a black velvet Elvis on the wood grain mantle of their mobile home. They're not hurting anybody, right? So mm -hmm. in a sense that he's actually the more and more, he's acknowledging that he's the more morally despicable person in this scenario. Right. They're not hurting anyone. They have simple pleasures, you know, 
And he's the one that is going around looking at motes and other people's eyes and casting judgments, you know? Yes. I mean, don't you think that even just looking at somebody as closely as he does with Kmart people, even just noticing them mm -hmm. and not just writing them off is kind of an act of love? I think so. It's hard to describe, but imagine an essay in which you could tell he was trying to say only flattering things about them. That's, that comes off as very condescending. Extremely condescending. It would actually be more offensive because it's like, mm -hmm. oh, he, you can tell he secretly doesn't like them, but he doesn't want us to know he doesn't like them, so he's pretending that they're all good. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. He's not going to condescend. He's not going to patronize. Mm -hmm. He's going to respect them enough to be honest about them. Yes. So it's a form of respect, yeah. Mm -hmm. I really like that. Okay, so we've talked about authorial persona. He's a little bit judgy, but mostly self-judgy. He's quite neurotic. There's another thing I want to say about authorial persona. Right from the beginning of the essay, we get this wonderful detail, right? I mean, it's like the first ink spilled in the essay. You hear the sound of flipping pages. Okay, so 080593, 0800 hours, right? So he's marking his visit to the State Fair in dates and military times, right? Time by time by time. The militariness is kind of, it's hilarious. Why? I mean, yeah, so the question, the question I would ask is what effect does that have on you? Why do that as a writer? What, did, what effect did it have on you as a reader? You say it's hilarious. You expect extremely important entries. You expect something great to have happened, but... <laughs> it's just the dessert competition. Right. Okay, I want to talk a little bit more. We've touched this, we've touched on this, but I wanted to talk, introduce a concept. Okay, so wait, I'm going to back it a little bit. If you're taking notes, take these notes. One reason this is great is because he sees everything. He's an extremely keen observer. Second reason why it's great is because he cultivates a persona as an author that is charming and vulnerable and self-critical and honest. A third, I'm going to say, is uh, that he uses words well. <laughs> what a surprise. To be an author, we should use words well. There's a fancy French term for this called the mot juste. You can, you know, dazzle your relatives at Thanksgiving by busting out this word, the mot juste. This is a word that comes from Flaubert, French novelist Flaubert, who apparently was so addicted to style and revision and getting the right word that it could sometimes take him a week to complete one page of writing. A week to complete one page of writing. Think about that, um, people listening to this. I'm giving you about two weeks per writing assignment. So I really am hoping that you weigh very carefully every single word. There's a bunch of words, just word choices, uh, that I really love. For example, he, he says about the cow manure that it smells wonderful, quote, warm and herbal and blameless, which I thought was a great way to describe cow manure. Oh gosh, I could have never thought of blameless. It's so good, right? It's perfect. Okay, tell us, I don't know what, I don't know how I would answer this question, but why is blameless so good? It's, per is, it's perfect. Right, there's something harmless about it, something um, wholesome. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. It, it's, it's like a rejuvenating kind of smell. Smells like rebirth. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. As opposed to the sheep excrement, which he has, says has a quote, evil vomity edge to it, <laughs> which I really loved too. So, oh again, 
It's just one barnyard manure versus another barnyard manure. But look at how carefully he's choosing his words. He's not just saying, oh, they smell gross or they smell like manure. One smells blameless and the other has an evil vomity edge. These are two of my favorite word choices. So often, how do we do this as writers? How do we get, I'll ask you, Claire, what advice do you have for them to get how do you get to a place where your readers think, wow, she chose the exact right word? Well, counterintuitively, I think you might actually have to choose something that at first seems wrong. Okay, say more about that. It seems surprising because you wouldn't yeah. have chosen the word. Yeah, yeah. But then it also has to hold up. Right. If you start weighing the word, it has to actually be true in That's some great. way. Or feel true, if not actually be factually true. I think that's great. I think those are the two best things. Like, it can't be obvious, so that's what you mean by counterintuitive, right? Mm -hmm. So try to surprise your reader with your word choice. Right, but you can't do it too much either. Yeah, you it can't be to. like, His, the cow manure smelled, <laughs> you know, I don't know, what's an, what's an outrageous example? <laughs> like cotton candy. You know, it's like, well, that's outrageous, it's surprising, but, but, it's, but it's untrue. Yeah. Um, so aim to surprise, but aim to be true. Yeah. And don't don't um, re don't rely don't rest on don't assume that your first choice or your second choice or your third choice will be a good choice because I'd be willing to bet that those first few choices are going to be slightly cliche. Mm -hmm. They're going to be maybe things you've heard before. That's why they come to you first. So give it you know. Try replacing a word three or four or five times at least, and you know, wait, be patient, taste it, let it settle, come back to it, and see if it still strikes you as good. Mm -hmm. Other and, and you don't want to be overusing this type of uh, word all the time because mm. then they just get lost. Well, I don't know. No, that's a great point. Yeah. That's a great point, actually, because there's, I don't know, I, I wasn't expecting to talk about this point, so I might not be able to come up with an example right away. He certainly does have dazzling sentences like, the sheep manure has an evil vomity edge, or you like the one about the sky. Yeasty heat. Oh, Yeast, yeasty heat, and you like the one about sky. Well, he just said the sky looked like old jeans, had the color of old jeans. The sky had the color beautiful. of old jeans. So... He certainly has his fair share of amazing phrases and words and sentences. But I also want to point out that not every single sentence is intended to dazzle. Exactly. I wasn't preparing to talk about this, but I mean, you could probably just pick a sentence as random. And well, here's a good example. So this is chosen more or less random. Here's the beginning sentence of a paragraph, the briefing. So remember, all of the press who are going to re report on the state fair are huddled together and they're given, they have to hear these speeches, right? The press briefing. So this is a sentence. The briefing is dull, period. That's a sentence. He's not trying to be flashy. He's not trying to impress you. He's not trying to be clever. He's letting himself just make a plain statement. You know what I mean? If you, what, what would happen if every single sentence was a sentence in which he was trying desperately to be clever. If he pulled it off for every single sentence, I it mean, would be very impressive, but I mean, it would guess, also be exhausting. True. It would be exhausting. Yeah. And I don't think anyone could pull that off. No. It would be too exhausting. I think you need sentences that are just like, okay, this is 
to relay information. I can turn down the volume of my wit. The, the briefing is dull. This is followed by a sentence, we are less addressed than rhetorically bludgeoned by a fair personnel. So one sentence, the wit is kind of off, and then the next, it's kind of on. Yeah, you know, so to be a good balance. That has to be a good balance. That's exactly right. Can't have one climax after another. <laughs> I know. Rare meat sunset is a good... Wow. A rare meat sunset. Okay, that's a perfect one, because I also wanted to talk about how his metaphors... The images that he uses are all, they all um, have the same tone, the same mood. Mm. They just, like the old jeans, the, the sky looked, had the color of old jeans. Yeah. It's perfect because then you think of all the people walking around the state fair in old jeans. Yeah. You think of all the things that that implies, lower classes and... Farmers. Farmers and, yeah. He could have said the sky had the color of... Indian sapphire, you know. And it would be jarring. And it wouldn't be from that scene. All of the metaphors come from that scene and reinforce the tone of that scene exactly. and the lifestyle of that yes. scene. So rare meat sunset, the sky had the color of old jeans, or the zipper was the color of unbrushed teeth. And the vomity edge of the sheep. Yeah. Or the yeasty heat. Yes. Yeasty heat. We get the baking bread and the... Mm -hmm the wheat fields and the cornfields. Yeah, that's a great point. So um, one thing that can help you guide your metaphors and give your piece a sense of cohesion and coherence is to, yeah, really reinforce the atmosphere of the scene and to reinforce the place that this event is, is occurring in. Right. You don't just want a good metaphor. You want it to, to fit the rest of your piece. Yeah. I also want to talk, we should have talked about this in the authorial persona section. But I also, another thing I love about this essay, and the Cruz one too, is that he doesn't talk down to his audience. So he's very smart. Mm -hmm. <laughs> clearly. He's clearly very smart. And uh, could have used, he could have used words that aren't so complicated all the time. For example, he refers to, he uses words like asperse. He's like, I don't want to asperse, but it looks like that Ronald McDonald has been drinking or something. <laughs> he uses adjectives like heliolated, or he refers to Socratic banter. He doesn't explain these things. He doesn't give you definitions. He assumes that you are as smart as him. And why is this good? You feel like you're peers. Yeah, it's, we don't feel, we as readers don't feel condescended to. Mm -hmm. You know, we feel included in the creation of this piece and in the observations. I think that's really important. Yeah, there's something empowering about that too. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point. He is. Um, I'm not as smart as him, but when I read this, I feel like he's reaching out to me and saying, "No, you, you could be. You are. Maybe you are." Yeah. You know. Okay. I want to talk about a few more of my very favorite moments. Do you have a, like a favorite? Maybe we've talked about it already. If so, we can move on and talk about a few more. But. What's your favorite scene or character or moment or part of this essay? It's hard to say. There's so many good ones. The scene with the batons was hilarious. It is so funny. It's extremely hilarious. People getting hit in the crotch and falling down the bleachers. <laughs> he says that they, these little girls in like glittery spandex, like marching in with batons, like holding M16 <laughs> rifles. 
It's the most dangerous place in the whole fairground. <laughs> Shattered glass flying everywhere. Somebody gets hit in the nose. Well, that's one of the funniest ones, but... Don't ask me how to be funny on the page. I mean, we could... We, if I was a good teacher of writing, I would have something to say about how to be a funny writer. I have no idea. No. Read, read more. I don't know. Or describe things that are already funny. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the kind of person who starts a sacrament meeting talk with a joke that no one laughs at. So, other favorite bits? Oh, seriously, so hard. I... I have to read. I have to read that clogging bit. That's oh, one of my favorite bits. Oh, yeah, the clogging, obviously, yes. Um, I want to read a little bit of this because I think it's so good. This is so it's easy to read this and get the impression that David Foster Wallace just hates everyone and is a crank. And that's yeah, I wouldn't. I mean, that, there is some small truth to that, I'm sure. But and he admits to it. And he does admit to that. But I also think that he's capable of loving things really genuinely. Mm -hmm. And surprisingly, he's capable of loving things that other people would just mock. Yes. One example of this that I won't read is, so they're, all of the press people are yeah, in this press briefing and they have to hear all these boring speeches and one speech is by the governor and he looks around at the other reporters and they're all like totally bored and apathetic and then he says about the governor's speech something like, I thought it was fairly moving. Yeah. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah. I love that so much. It was like just a stupid governor from some dumb state fair giving a boring rote speech, you know, probably his heart's not in it. And probably terribly written. And probably terribly written and, you know, just a, like one of those horrible meetings that we all have to sit through. And here, and, and would be so easy to mock. That's the thing that really marvels me. It would be such an easy thing to mock. Or to not even listen to. Yeah. And here David Foster Wallace is saying, no, 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 I was actually, like, I paid attention and I thought it was quite moving. So mm -hmm. he's willing to admit to being able, being able to love things that are, other people think are dumb and silly. I know, and he even says about the reporters, nobody likes reporters. <laughs> <laughs> he, you know, he says they kind of have orange complexions because of the makeup. And, yeah. But he says it kind of, it seemed like they were trying to get me to vote for them, and I kind of wanted to, or something like yeah. that. Yeah, like he admitted to being moved. Yeah. I love what he says about these cloggers. Um, he goes into this like this weird mix of like barn dancing and square dancing and I don't know what tap dancing. Yeah, this this genre of dancing that they've invented. Um, so we'll just read for a little bit here. The audience is packed in right to the edge of the portable hardwood flooring. The teams are mostly married couples. The men are either rail thin or have big hanging guts. That's a great observation too, right? Mm -hmm. I know exactly the kind of crowd he's talking about. It is a weird mix. <laughs> Weirdly, no no men are, are in between. I don't know how that works out, but it's very strange. A couple of the men are great fluid Astaire-like dancers, but mostly it's the women who compel. The males have constant sunny smiles, but the women look orgasmic. They're the really serious ones, transported. Their yips and whoops are involuntary, pure exclamation. They are arousing. The audience claps savvily on the backbeat and whoops when the women do. It's almost all folks from the ag and livestock shows, the flannel shirts, khaki pants, seed caps and freckles. The spectators are soaked in sweat and extremely happy. I think this is the ag community's special treat, a chance here to cut loose a little while their animals sleep in the heat. The psychic transactions between cloggers and crowd seem representative of the fair as a whole, a culture 
talking to itself, presenting credentials for its own inspection. How great is that? This dance, this, this dance is just for themselves. It's a culture talking to itself, presenting credentials for its own inspection. Like, look at what we can do. Yeah, it's beautiful. Look at how strong we are and how healthy we are and how happy we are. You and know? we're just doing it for us. We're just doing it for us. This isn't to become famous. This isn't for likes on Facebook. Mm. This is just us like being proud of who we are. Mm. So beautiful. So I'll keep reading. Uh, this is just a smaller and specialized rural us, bean farmers and herbicide brokers and 4-H sponsors and people who drive pickup trucks because they really need them. <laughs> they eat non-fair food from insulated hampers. That's a great detail too. The kind of people who come to a state fair with lunch and coolers. So great. Um, ba, ba, ba. And they drink beer and pop and stomp in perfect time and put their hands on neighbor's shoulder to shout in their ear while the cloggers twirl and fling sweat on the crowd. This is, this is a wonderful paragraph. There are no black people in the Twilight Ballroom. The looks on the younger ad kids' faces have this awakened, astonished aspect, like they didn't realize their own race could dance like this. Three married couples from Rantoul wearing full Western bodysuits the color of raw coal. Wow. Weave an incredible filigree of high-speed tap around Aretha's R-E-S-P-E-C-T. And there's no hint of racial irony in the room. The song has been made these people's own emphatically. This 90s version of clogging does have something sort of pugnaciously white about it, a kind of performative nose-thumping at Jackson and Hammer. There's an atmosphere in the room, not racist, but aggressively white. It's hard to describe. The atmosphere is the same at a lot of rural Midwest public events. It's not like if a black person came in, he'd be ill-treated. It's more like it would just never occur to a black person to come in here. But here comes my favorite bits. Two little girls are playing jacks under the table I'm next to. Two of the dancing Rantoul wives are fat with great legs. Who could practice this kind of dancing as much as they must and stay fat? I think maybe rural Midwestern women are just congenitally big. But these people clogging get down, and they do it as a trope, a collective with none of the narcissistic look-at-me-grandstanding of great dancers in rock clubs. They hold hands and whirl each other around and in and out, tapping like mad, their torsos upright and almost formal, as if only incidentally attached to the blur of legs below. It goes on and on. I'm rooted to my stool. Now, the next paragraph I also want to read, too, because I think it follows this celebration of the cloggers very strategically. I think there's a reason why he's contrasting that type of dancer, this rural Midwestern clogger, with the dancers he's about to describe, the dancers that are, he just says, East Coast, again, like dancers that he th maybe thinks he would have more in common with than the Midwestern cloggers, but actually kind of feels quite sorry for. So this is the exact next paragraph. 8.15.16.36, trying to hurry to grandstand, baton twirling is still underway in the McDee's tent. A band called Captain Rat and the Blind Rivets is playing at the Lincoln stage, and as the path's mass goes by, I can see dancers in there. They look jagged and arrhythmic and blank, bored in that hip, young, East Coast-taught way, facing in instead of out, not touching their partners. The people not dancing don't even look at them. And after the clogging, the whole thing looks unspeakably lonely and numb. Right, so again, like the East Coast snobbish world that he comes from, he's got all these elite Ivy educations, right? 
feels hollow, empty, heartless, cold compared to this kind of orgiastic, just for us celebration of the dancers. Mm -hmm. I think that section is so beautiful with the cloggers because in this essay, you kind of, up until that point, you kind of assume that his point is, you know, these people, these masses, they're like herds. Yeah. <clears throat> but then you get to this point and, and he makes a very beautiful argument for when it's amazing to be part of a big thing, a big group, mm. when to move together. You kind of, I kind of thought, okay, he, as a writer, he wants to be stand apart from the herds of people at the state fair. He wants to be an individual. But um, then you get to this clogging part and he's so entranced and so moved by all of it that he, he just seems lonely. Yeah. Wanting to be a part of that human experience, that shared human experience. And I, it's great too that he wasn't he doesn't he doesn't have to love them. He wasn't expecting to love them. Mm -hmm. It's not his scene, it's not his crowd, they're not his people. And yet he couldn't help it. He was just kind of seduced into it. So there's this wonderful sense that he unabashedly loves them. Mm -hmm. You know, without qualification or preconceptions. I don't know. If that makes sense. And again, he wasn't romanticizing them at all. Yeah. He described pot bellies and big legs and obese women with great legs. Yeah. <laughs> like, the know. honesty is a really important part of love, you know, like to see something as it is and to love it. Right. It's honesty that's that can be condemning, but also very flattering. So um, we could talk a lot more about this, but we'll have more to say about David Foster Wallace when we talk next time about the cruise essay which we love even more, right? Yeah, even more. <laughs> even more. Um, and it's even longer. Uh, but I just wanted to summarize some writing lessons, right? So to review, if you're making a, a list of like how to become a great writer, see everything, pick the right words, try to sound like a person, like a human. You don't have, if you're not David Foster Wallace, maybe you're not, I happen to not be. <laughs> Uh, you don't have to sound like him exactly, but you should sound like a person. Sound like yourself. Mm -hmm. Be honest about who you are. Be honest about when you're flawed. Be honest about what you like. If you have weird child-induced things about beaks or traumas about concentric circles spinning inside other independently moving concentric <laughs> circles, then, you know, put that on the page. That's really interesting and characterizing and personifying. So create a voice. Sound like yourself implicate yourself. Don't say those people over there are bad and I'm good, mm -hmm. or I'm doing it right and you're doing it wrong, or the problems with the world don't exist in me, they exist in her or him or them. Balance candor with tact, so he's, he's honest about the way people are and behave and look. Don't talk down to your audience. Love things. I think it's really important. Mm -hmm. Write about stuff that you love, that you weren't expecting to love, and that you just love. That would be really infectious. Yeah. Don't try to be clever, but then on the other hand, strive to get the right word down. Surprise, a word that is both surprising, as Claire said, but true, right? That holds up. Mm -hmm. Drum roll, conclusion, fanfare, canned applause. Maybe I'll tap in some canned applause to the end of this. <laughs> we don't get to talk about books enough because usually we have like kids 
in the background screaming for snacks. Um, so I'm actually glad we get to, like, lock a door and talk about books that we like. Yeah. The end. Okay, so now we come to the writing prompt portion of the lesson. Uh, this writing prompt is just designed to help get your body moving and help introduce uh, writing back into your routine maybe after a summer without any writing. It's very simple, it's very easy, it's very low pressure, which is another reason I like it. Um, it's a five-minute free write, so this, if you want to do it, again, these are all just for fun. You don't have to do any of these writing prompts. This is just for fun, but if you want to do it, Get out your phone, open your stopwatch or timer, set the timer for five minutes, and then just start writing. Write as fast as you can. Write with a pen, write on a computer, write about something that you imagined, write about something that happened to you, write the same word over and over and over again for five minutes. You know, it could be just banana a thousand times. It really doesn't matter. I call this prompt priming the pump. And, you know, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but if you walk into like a really old house or uh, maybe, you, I don't know, you go on some crazy long vacation and you come home and you turn on the sink and for a few seconds, a bunch of old brown gunky water starts pouring out the drain. Uh, this writing prompt is designed to get all of that water that's been sitting in the pipes, all that nasty gunk out of your system. So that, you know, when you start devoting your attention to the writing exercises of this class, um, there's more fresh stuff moving through your system. It's just, so the goal of this writing prompt is not brilliance. It's not beauty. It, the goal is just to get your body moving. When you're done this writing prompt, you don't even have to read what you've written. It's probably going to be horrible. Like I say, that's the goal. As long as you've moved your body for five minutes and put words on pages then you've absolutely nailed it. And to conclude here, I would like to read a poem. I'll probably end all of these recordings with short poems that I love, because I am a poet, and it's easier to read poems as opposed to short stories or chapters. You know, they wouldn't really fit in these recordings. I love reading poems. I love inflicting poems on other people. Uh, so this little last part really has nothing to do with the course assignments. It's just an extra bonus, an extra treat, and I hope you enjoy it. I chose this first poem because many of you might be returning to the state of Utah. And if you're not, you're probably from the state of Utah, a state I really love. And this is definitely my favorite Utah poem. It's actually written by a non-Utahan, a British poet named Anne Stevenson. It's called simply Utah. And I hope you enjoy it. Utah. Somewhere, nowhere in Utah, a boy by the roadside, gun in his hand, and the rare, dumb, hard tears flowing. Beside him, a gray-headed man has let one arm slide awkwardly over his shoulders, is talking and pointing at whatever it is dead in the dust on the ground. By the old parked Chevy, two women talking and watching. Their skirts flag forward, bandana twist with their hair. Around them, 
sheep and a fence, and the sagebrush burning and burning with a blue flame. In the distance, where mountains are clouds, lightning, but no rain. So that's it. I hope you enjoyed this first class or recording or episode. I don't know how informative or listenable these will be. They're all experiments, so we'll see. Keep your eyes peeled for the next uh, recording, which will be about the second David Foster Wallace essay. And in the meantime, just enjoy the readings, keep writing, and don't forget that you too have what it takes to become a great writer. (laughs) 